Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. <sighs> Jesus, we, uh, we know that when we look at you, we see something that we haven't seen anywhere else. We see a life and we see an abundance. We see a vitality, an energy uh, that is profound. And it's not, it's not the way we expected it. It's not just that, uh, um, that your teaching is so profound, and it is. You have some absolutely sublime teaching, but it's also that you, you eat with the social pariahs. It's also that you respond with, uh, by, by touching those with leprosy who are unclean. You sort of disrupt social conventions. You totally redefine the way we think about God, the way we think about you, the way we think about one another. You, you make us, you unsettle us and you make us very uncomfortable. But we're so compelled by you because we haven't seen another human live the way you live. And so as we turn our face toward uh, your way of life, as we look at uh, the practices you engaged in while you were on this earth, would you transform us? Would you unsettle us some more? And know that even if we are uncomfortable, we're uncomfortable together. And you're with us. And the life that you promise us um, is so much better than the control that we think we have over our own lives right now. So speak today, Holy Spirit, and guide us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, as I said, we've been in this series that we're calling The Way of Jesus. Uh, kind of like what I just prayed. When we look at the story of Jesus, we see a life and an energy that we don't see elsewhere. And we've been sort of framing around uh, the Nobel uh, winning physicist, Erwin Schrodinger, where he was asked, how do things stay alive? Um, how does a living organism live? And he says, by consumption, by what they eat, by what they drink, by breathing air. Whatever a thing consumes, it metabolizes. It changes into energy. Energy that could lead to life, energy that could lead to death. And so what we're looking at is this Jesus, when we look at his story, we see a life and an energy that we don't see elsewhere. So the question is, what is he consuming? What is he eating? Whatever he's having, I wanna have, because there's a power about him I don't see elsewhere. And he tells us, he tells us what he's consuming. He tells us the secret of his diet, so to speak. In John five, he writes, very truly I tell you, the son, referring to himself, the son can do nothing by himself, nothing. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Jesus says he consumes the father, he consumes God. He orders and organizes his day in such a way that his, his relationship with God is first and foremost and primary. So we're examining those practices and habits and patterns that allow Jesus to do that. And today what we wanna to talk about, um, and it was, it's probably works out well, because it felt like you guys came to do it today, is worship. 
We want to talk about worship. Now, I throw that word out, and I know, you know, as we say all the time, our tagline, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. So I know we have all sorts of people in this room, people who uh, accept Jesus' claims about himself, people who do not, who are still like unsure. So I know that we have like a wide range of opinions. But I throw that word out, worship, and we're already at an impasse (laughs) because that is a very ambiguous concept. Usually, when we define worship, um, we reduce it to what we just did, right? Singing. Usually, worship is, when we think about worship or we throw around that word, worship is the songs that we sing to God. And I want to say there's good reason for this. And we're going to talk about that today. There is good reason for this. Because music and song does seem to be the heart of worship of God. It does. But worship as a concept and as a practice is much broader than just music. And when we look at singing, singing does not necessarily imply worship. We've all been in context. I definitely have, whether it's in, in a group or in myself, where I'm singing the words, but I'm not worshiping, right? There can be a room full of song, but there might not be a heart that is worshiping. Or conversely, we've also been in context where the room seems to be uh, uh, very energetic. How do you say it, right? There's hands in the air, there's tons of clapping, there's movement, but it seems a bit off-putting. It feels a little fabricated. So it's not just the song, though a heart that is singing genuinely, responding genuinely, does seem to be at the core of worship. So I want to examine that. Why, why is worship uncomfortable? Because it is. <laughs> it is uncomfortable. My friends uh, who are not followers of Jesus, and you might be in here in one of those, when I talk to them about like, and they come visit and, and you know, come to church, um, one of the things that makes them most uncomfortable is praise and worship when we sing. And I want to talk about why that's the case. There are actually a couple reasons. First, the lyrics are really strange sometimes, aren't they? <laughs> the lyrics are strange. They're highly intimate language, love songs to a certain degree. And they're very metaphorical. One of my favorite songs of all time, and we sing it here, also, I know, has one of the weirdest lines in it. Uh, Skeleton Bones, John Mark McMillan. And uh, the start of the second verse, he says, we want your blood to flow inside our bodies. We want your wind inside our lungs. And I know if you're here, you don't know anything about the Jesus story, you're like, I'm sorry, come again? (laughs) Blood and bodies, what's going on with that? Where did I step into? They have smiles, but what are they about? Like, I need to leave right now. All right, that's super intimate and weird. Now, obviously, it's a metaphor. And for those of us who know the story of Jesus and, and God in the flesh coming to die for us, we're poetically looking at this, this image and saying that there's a power in his blood. There's a power in his sacrificial death, um, that, that we want to enter into a relationship with him. But that's still weird. <laughs> there's actually a fun little game that I was talking with Nathan uh, and Jennifer earlier in the week, and there's a fun little game called God or Girlfriend. Have you ever heard of this game? Where you look at song lyrics and you're like, who is this written by and for? Was it for God or was it for a girlfriend? So we're gonna play real quick, all right? I'm gonna read out some lyrics. Oh yeah. I'm gonna read out some lyrics and you shout out, is it God or girlfriend? All right, you ready? I can't win, I can't reign. 
I will never win this game without you, without you. I am lost, I am vain, I will never be the same without you, without you. I won't run, I can't fly, I will never make it by without you, without you. Oh, 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 you, you, you. <laughs> without you, you, you. God or girlfriend? girlfriend? Girlfriend, bonus points, who knows the artist? No one? It's our very own Usher, come on now. Come on. <laughs> yes. All right, here we go, here, another one. Well, I came home like a stone and I fell heavy into your arms. These days of dust, which we've known, will blow away with this new sun. But I'll kneel down, wait for now, and I'll kneel down, know my ground, and I will wait, I will wait for you. And I will wait, I will wait for you. God or girlfriend? Oh, who knows the artist? Mumford and Sons. <laughs> it's a fun game, guys, you should play. It's a fun game. <laughs> so there's intimate lyrics. We are singing of our love for God. That's weird, all right? Why else is worship uncomfortable? Well, it's emotional, right? And not only is it emotional, but we're in this room together and we're experiencing other people's emotions. And some of us don't have um, experience with that. Some of us aren't even in tune with our own emotions. That's totally fine. But if you're, not, if you're that person, you're not in tune with your own emotions and you come here and you see people crying and like hands in the air, you're like, okay, what did I step into? Right, it's very emotional. And hopefully the emotions are genuine, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they can be contrived. So we're trying to figure out, that makes it super uncomfortable. <laughs> Another reason worship is uncomfortable, peer pressure, right? We're talking about the emotions. We, we look around and we see people feeling something and then we wonder, well, why am I not feeling it? What's happening? Am I not doing something right? It, what, it, what is like the magic word you have to say? What, what do I have to do to also experience this? So there's peer pressure and shame if we're not feeling what we think we should be feeling, not experiencing what we think we should be experiencing. And lastly, uh, why I think worship can be uncomfortable, especially from the outset, um, is if you're not familiar, God kind of seems like a narcissist, doesn't he? Like throughout the Bible, he's constantly saying, hey, praise me, worship me, respond with praise. He's asking people to praise him. And actually, uh, I, I've talked, I talk about C.S. Lewis um, in here. He's definitely formed my thinking. C.S. Lewis was a, a, an Irishman, and he was an atheist for a long time, and he became a Christian later on in life. And uh, when he was coming to faith and like seeing the story was true of Jesus, something that really bothered him and like was a stumbling block was this, that God commanded his people to praise him. He writes, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity, who gratify that demand, right? Is God just like, come in, children, tell me how awesome I am, right? That's what it feels like. If you're not familiar with it, it's like, what, that's weird. I remember I saw a documentary um, a while back on, uh, on North Korea, and uh, you may have seen this. It was uh, a team, uh, 
they're optometrists, I think, they're eye doctors. And uh, under the pretext of uh, cornea repair surgeries, they were allowed into North Korea and they brought in the team of videographers from CNN. And they went and sort of documenting stuff and then they performed the surgeries, obviously, so they didn't uh, cause any alarms. And it was super spooky. There's a scene toward the end where, where the people who received the surgeries removed their bandages and they could see for the first time. The blind could see. And what you witness as they're documenting this is there's a picture on the wall of the North Korean dictator. I can't remember if it was Kim Jong-un or his father. But they're looking at him and they begin to just break down in sobs and worship him. They worship him. It's super spooky. And of course for us, I immediately think of stories where Jesus heals the blind and the blind are like, oh my gosh, who are you? I praise you. Is that what's going on? Quickly, let me say no. <laughs> and I'm gonna explain by the end of this message why those two examples, though on the surface might seem similar, are infinitely different. But it can feel like that. It can feel like God is a little narcissistic. Worship me. And this is important, friends, because as we, if you've been tracking with us at the start of the year, our, 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 uh, the, the secular prophet, David Foster Wallace, as he says, and he's right, everybody worships. Everybody worships. There's no such thing as not worshiping. To live at all is to have a reason for living. What is your reason for living? What is the meaning that you give, that you make for your life? Because whatever that is, that is what you worship, that is what you praise, that is what you put your hope in. And, and to worship something, to praise something, is simply to commend it as worthy and, and worthy of admiration, is it not? That's all we're doing, to praise that, that thing, uh, to praise a, a, a sporting team is to say they're the best team. It's worthy of admiration. And of course, obviously, like we, we see that there's, there's degrees of that, but that's what we're getting at. What is the, the reason for your life? Whatever that is, is what you worship. And now we have opinions about worshiping work or worshiping family or worshiping leisure. But when we come here, ultimately what I'm saying, what I'm inviting us all into is to worship Jesus. To turn our hearts and to say he's worthy of admiration. To sing to the God of Jesus. And that, I know, unnerves us. <laughs> that makes us super uncomfortable. I've had so many conversations with friends who like, we talk about the gospel and about life and about the story of Jesus and it kind of makes sense. And it might even be some of you in this room, we've had conversations and, and it makes sense and kind of we're seeing it. And then you're like, all right, I'll even pray to God, right? I'll, I'll tell God, uh, thank you. But then I say, okay, what does it look like to pray to Jesus? What does it look like to to praise him, to tell him how good he is. And that sort of triggers something. And you're like, whoa, that's, that's another step of intensity. I want to examine today why that's the case. And I want to examine what it is that we see when we see someone genuinely worshiping Jesus. What it is we're looking at and why it makes us uncomfortable 
Because it does, it makes me uncomfortable many times too. Why do I get uncomfortable when I see someone genuinely singing to Jesus? And for our text today, we're gonna look at John's gospel, the 12th chapter, verses one through eight. So you can pull that out on your phone or we're gonna put it on the screen behind us. And this is what we read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor? Because it was about a, it was worth a year's wages. Let that sink in just for a second. This perfume was worth, if you worked an entire year, all that money you could possibly make was worth that gone. Now he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Worship is uncomfortable. And let's be honest. If we were in a room and we saw Mary empty an entire bottle of perfume on a guy's feet and start wiping it with her hair, we're gonna get uncomfortable too. We might even ask the question of Judas. Why such waste? That's basically what he says. Why such waste? I think Judas's question is our question in a lot of ways because we're watching the Marys of the world and we don't understand what they're doing and what they see. Why such waste? A year's wages wasted on perfume to anoint Jesus' feet when there are so many problems in the world where that money could have gone. If we're being honest, that's our question. I'm definitely thinking of it like there are better ways to use a year's wages in a broken world. And Jesus' reply is very problematic. He says, the poor you're always gonna have, you will not always have me. As Hauerwas writes, we really wish Jesus would not have said that. <laughs> because if there's ever a, a line of Jesus's where Karl Marx seemingly has proven true that religion is the opiate of the masses, it has to be this one, right? What's he saying? It sort of justifies the claim that, that religion is just sort of this drug that puts you to sleep, puts you in this euphoric bliss that you can make it by while the world burns around you. It seems to suggest that. And we're tempted when we see this gesture of worship, of love, we're tempted like Judas to be like, why, it's so wasteful. Why, what is this? We're tempted to write Mary off. Say, hey, Mark was right. But before you do that, before I do that, I wanna consider a couple things, okay? First, 
The one who said, you're always gonna have the poor with you, was himself poor. That's important, friends. He talks about his own ministry where he says like Jesus was born in Nazareth, which is a very poor town. He was born to a carpenter. So they probably were living paycheck to paycheck, project to project. And then when he starts his ministry, he constantly says these ambiguous things like the son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a dime to his name. He travels and he lives on people's hospitality. Jesus is poor. He's not a rich person. So that Mary decides to give such an expensive gift to a poor person, but not a gift that will make Jesus less poor is curious, is it not? It's not like Mary gave this expensive gift. It's not like she sold uh, the perfume and took the money, said, here, Jesus, take the money. Now you can be middle-class like me. A little better off and still depressed. It's the best, (laughs) right? That's, that's often, I think that's often, it's not, it's not that, that, that Jesus is now better off. Jesus is still poor. If anything, it's worse because Mary's now poor with him. She just wasted a year's wages. They're both poor. What do they see that I don't see? This is a waste. This is a waste. I think it reveals to us why you and I, why often we can have the mindset of Judas because we view people through one lens, economics as if all the poor are is poor, as if the fundamental essence of a person is their economic position, as if that's what it means to be human, that there aren't other things that make a human fully human, more rich, more poor. And I wanna be clear here at this point, I am not celebrating poverty itself. I have friends, I was very fortunate to come from middle-class family, but I have friends who grew up in poverty and they still bear on their bodies and their stories. It's trauma. So I am not celebrating poverty itself. All I'm trying to point out is often our quote unquote care for the poor, like Judas, why didn't we just sell that and give it to the poor? Often our care for the poor is reduced to nothing more than just making the poor like us, middle-class. That's what it means to care. So what does Mary see that she would give, she would offer such an expensive gift to a poor person of which Jesus is that does not improve his economic situation and that only worsens hers? What does she see that she would celebrate Jesus as he is and join him where he is? I don't know what she sees. The second thing we can't forget when we look at this story is that this house is filled with death. It's filled with it. Jesus says that. He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save the perfume for the day of my burial. She bought this gift for my burial. Jesus is about to die and he knows it and he keeps telling people. So again, let's consider this. This exorbitant gift is wasted on the feet of one who's about to die. This gift does not prevent Jesus's death. It's not like, again, Mary goes, sells the perfume, takes the money, goes, all right, let's smuggle you out of here, Jesus. Let's save your life. It doesn't make him middle class. And it doesn't prevent his death. He's still poor and he's still going to die. Wasteful. 
wasteful. What does Mary see and Jesus? What is going on in this exchange? I think that the mindset of Judas, which also we struggle with when we get uncomfortable with worship, it's sort of the connection of economics and death. Because I think for Judas, the most powerful thing in the world is death. So death creates an economics of scarcity. Death creates an economics of scarcity. What does that mean? It means for Judas, he's thinking, well, we're all going to die, right? We have limited time, limited resources. Let's fix this world best we can, or let's just like live a little more indulgently best we can because he helped himself to the money bag. Or let's better our family best we can, but death is still the final and ultimate thing. Why would you not sell this perfume? How can you sing about your love for Jesus when so much bad is in this world? What do you see? And we're tempted to write this whole story off and say, well, Judas was a thief. I'm not a thief. Well, maybe Judas was a literal thief, like he stole actual coins. But how do we know that our calling this a waste, our saying this was a wasteful use of the perfume, our care for the poor, how do we know that that's not just me trying to cheat death? To feel like I made this world a little bit better. To maybe have my name live on after my body dies. I'm still operating by the same economics. Death is still what is final. I'm just trying to buy a little bit more time. I'm just trying to preserve my name a little bit better. Maybe I'm not stealing money, but I'm stealing time, aren't we? Noble, but still operating off the economics of scarcity. And that death is still the final thing. Time and resources are still limited. So if these are the questions we ask, when we see wasteful worship, when we see an exorbitant gift for someone who is poor, that does not make his economic station better, and for someone who's still going to die, if those are the questions we ask, then we might have Judas's mindset. Death is the final thing. Time, resources, value are all limited. If Jesus were really God, he would know this and he wouldn't accept this wasteful worship but he does. <laughs> and he says, don't bother her. She has done a good and right thing. <sighs> what does Mary see? Because <laughs> Jesus clearly lives and operates in a different world. And Mary has caught a glimpse of that world too. Jesus must live in a different world from Judas and Mary has caught a glimpse of that world. Well, in order to maybe answer that question, we need to go back one chapter. We're in chapter 12. In chapter 11, it tells the story of, Ju of Jesus and his disciples coming to Bethany. And uh, if you don't know, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who they said are at the table, they're, they're brothers and sisters. They're, they're all a family. And in chapter 11, Mary and Martha send for Jesus and they say, our brother Lazarus is sick. Come heal him. And Jesus is on his way, but while he's on his way, Lazarus dies. And Jesus gets there and everyone's grieving and mourning and they've already buried him. Uh, they put him in the tomb. 
and they're grieving and mourning. And Martha comes out to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you had been here, you could have saved him. I've seen your power. You could have saved him. And Jesus goes, you know your brother will live. And Martha goes, I know he's gonna be resurrected on the last day, meaning the day when God shows up. And Jesus looks and says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes. And then Jesus goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is raised from the dead. Mary has caught a glimpse of one who controls death, who has given her an unimaginable gift in giving her brother back. Yes, they'll both die. Lazarus will die again. Mary will die for the first time. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus controls death. Mary has caught a glimpse of one who knows that death is not the final thing that time is not limited, that resources are not scarce. Here's one who controls life and death. So she brings all she has to Jesus and she gives it to him. She throws it at his feet, not to change his position, for he's still going to die, nor to make Jesus less poor, but to praise him for who he is and what he's done. What do I care about money when my brother is alive? What do I care about expensive perfume when I'm going to live with Jesus forever? When he controls death, what do I care? See, as Jesus goes to his death, which he does, and is raised to life again by God, he demonstrates life and time are not scarce. We have an abundance of life. We have an abundance of life. We have an abundance of time. See, for, for Judas, death creates an economics of scarcity. But for Jesus, resurrection creates an economics of abundance. Because death is not the most powerful thing in your life now, in my life. I have an abundance of time. I have an abundance of resources. We have the one who controls it who raised my brother to life, which is why we are made so uncomfortable by worship because worship, worship is the purest act in that economy of abundance. See, we look at Mary's gift. We say, that's a year's wages, wasted. It's wasted because we're gonna die and it takes a lot to earn that money. But Mary's like, this is the one who raises the dead. <laughs> My values have all changed. What is important, what is not important. Worship is impoverishing myself to get to Jesus. Worship is laying down, giving up everything I'm holding on to, to get to Jesus. And it has to be friends, it has to be. Why? Because Jesus is poor. So to receive his gift is to be like him. Jesus has given up everything to get to you. To receive that gift is to give up everything to get to him. 
It's a mutual impoverishing. And in that, you learn that there's different values in place, that the resurrection creates an economy of abundance. Worship is not to make Jesus like me, nor is it, and this is important, nor is it to beseech like the rich, haughty God to accept me. I'm not like, God's not in his ivory tower and I'm doing these things, these worshipful things, hoping that he accepts me. That's not, that's religion and that's not Jesus. Worship is because I've encountered something in him that is far more valuable than anything I have or don't have. Anything this world says about me or doesn't say about me, any shame or guilt or questions that try to stick to me, worship is they don't stick to me anymore because Jesus came out of the tomb. He's come, he's given up everything for me. It's I'm not afraid of not having enough as the world defines enough. Worship is impoverishing myself, laying it down to join the God who has already laid it all down to be with me. Which that brings us full circle. And that explains why we have discomfort at God asking us to worship him, right? When God says, praise me, on the outset, it feels narcissistic. Like, whoa, why do you need this a little too much? This is why Jesus is nothing like the North Korean situation. Because worship, is a heart that impoverishes itself of everything to go and be with Jesus because Jesus has already impoverished himself of everything to come and be with you. Do not think for one second that God is asking you to praise him or to lay down your life for him as some sick gesture of religious devotion. Not for one second. God will never ask us to do something which he already hasn't done. He goes first. Our God always goes first. So if God is asking you to praise him, to worship him. It's because it is the natural response of one who has received God's gift of love. It completes the relationship. God says, hey, this broken world, I'm coming to love it. Which means Jesus goes, I'm gonna give up everything. We just sang about it. He took on the form of us. I'm gonna impoverish myself, give up glory, give up perfection, give up wholeness and enter into the world like one of you. I've impoverished myself of everything to give the gift of love for you. But how can you receive a gift if your hands are full of something else? You can't. The only way you receive the gift is by letting go what's ever in them, impoverishing yourself to go and meet Jesus. To worship Jesus is to receive Jesus who gave everything up to come and be with you. See, if God was rich, then worship would be a bribing of God, right? <laughs> worship would be bribing God to accept me. But if, if God became poor, the poorest of the poor, unto death, then worship is to join him in that state, to lay it all down 
and enter into a free relationship. God is pouring himself out for this world. That's what this story is all about. That's why Jesus is so unlike other stories. Because this is not a God who says, come to me. As in, I'm distant. You got to, you know, pay the, the price to get to me. This is a God who says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to give it. I'm going to impoverish myself for you. So the only natural response to receive that is to lay it all down and come to him. Is to impoverish yourself. Say, what is a vial of perfume? It doesn't matter to me like that. To receive this incredible gift is to say you can have it all. You can have it all. It completes the friendship. It orients our eyes to the kingdom's economics of abundance. Worship gives up whatever is holding us back from receiving God's gift. It's how we respond in love to the one who loved us first. What's deeper than death? The love of God through Jesus' son. That's what's deeper than death. And it makes sense because in the Greek language in which the New Testament is written, the word for worship is proskuneo, which is literally translated to kiss. God has come down to love us, to give us the gift of life, the gift of joy, the gift of friendship, both with him and one another, to truly receive that, to enter into that relationship, that friendship, it's gonna feel a lot like you just wanna kiss him. And I know that's intimate and I know that's weird, but to really see that love, how can I hold back anything from him? Because death doesn't get the final word. I'm not afraid of death. I have life with Jesus. I have joy and peace. To worship is to kiss. I, uh, I love um, the Humans of New York series, you know, on Instagram. And, um, and so I follow it. And there was one a while back. And there was these three kids in, in Cairo, Egypt. And I think we have a picture of it right there. I know it might be tough to see. And uh, I, I love the caption. I imagine it's the, the kid in the middle saying it because he has this big grin. So I think he gets it. But, um, but I don't know. But basically the caption says, they yell at us, don't play loud. Or no, sorry, they, they yell at us, don't play here. But where else are we supposed to play? And then they say to us, don't play loud. But how do you play not loud? <laughs> I love that line. How, how do you play not loud? If it's play, it's gonna be loud. All right, it's gonna happen. And I think, it explains why the core of this kind of worship is song. Because to truly see Jesus, to truly see the God who has impoverished himself, given it all up, is to say, how can I see that and not sing about it? How can I not just burst into song? When you look in the Bible, let me just let you know, anytime you see poems in the Bible, they're songs, which is so incredible and I love it. And the book of Psalms, um, which is like Israel's prayer book and that we pray out, they actually are not supposed to be read. They're supposed to be sung. Israel sings its prayers to God. I love that. Because to truly grasp this God who has given it all up to be with us, 
is to respond in music and in song. How do you play not loud? It can't happen. How do you worship this God without singing? It can't happen. Over, uh, over Christmas break, we were back in Oregon visiting Anna's family, and I preached at a church uh, in, in the town of Salem. And um, uh, we were, the service had started, and it was kind of like this semicircle room, and uh, uh, so we were up in the front, and we were singing songs, and uh, I was kind of, I was singing but not worshiping. I was singing, but I was thinking about the sermon. I was thinking about my notes and stuff like that. Um, and, um, and as we're singing, the door opens off to the left-hand side, and I see this maybe like nine-year-old girl. And she wasn't skipping, but she had a hop in her step. You know what I mean? You know, it's kind of like that mid-skip. She's not like full-on skipping, but she's definitely got a spring. And she just sort of comes down to the front, comes all the way to like the very front row, right in front of the band. And without missing a beat, she just falls onto her knees. And she closes her eyes and she starts singing with a smile on her face. I kid you not. And I lost it. I wanted to go up and be like, guys, we just got our sermon. We can go home now. I got nothing else. I lost it. Because that... That is the heart of Mary that says, you can have this perfume. What do I care? That is the heart of one who sees the friendship of Jesus, who sees his love and says, this is the only natural response, to fall onto the knees, to just sing with joy. I don't care about if people are judging me or not. See, I, I didn't fall onto my knees because I was still in that moment operating off of the economics of, of scarcity. That status is this thing, and I can't fall on my knees because what will people think of me? I could lose value, and I'm about to go up and preach, right? See how that works? But she, resurrection, the kingdoms and economics of abundance, she has seen the one who has loved her where she is. She has seen the one who has come for her, died for her, joined the human creature in every possible mode of being, even death. So the only natural response is to get on the knees and praise. I want to invite the band back up now. And we're going to respond right now by, by singing a song. Before we do, I want to mention something. I think this is important. And it kind of plays into today, uh, but I think it's bigger than this. I, I've been, uh, I, I read recently of this study um, not a study, it's an experiment. It was an experiment done on wine experts, wine experts. And uh, the experimenters, they took a bottle of like middle, middling Bordeaux wine and they poured it into two decanters. And the one they served up and they said, this is like your, your average table wine. And the other one they said, this is Grand Cru. This is like a really expensive red wine. And they gave them both to wine experts. And you already see where this is going. The wine experts rated the, 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 what they thought was the Grand Cru like so much higher than they rated the table wine. They described it that way, but it was the exact same bottle of wine. And this is important because what the experimenters are trying to get at is it matters the posture of your heart before you can receive something. 
or the line in the book is before before you can taste the wine you've already judged the wine before you can taste the wine you've already judged it and I'm not trying to trick anyone in this room. I truly believe that Jesus is everything he says he is, even if I don't fully understand how yet. But what I do wanna say is, before you can taste Jesus, you've already judged him. Before you can receive him, you've already made up your mind about whether he's a grand crew or whether he's a table wine. And here's why this matters. Because as we sing this next song, I want to invite you for just this one song to lay down whatever's in your hands. Whatever it is you're holding on to, I wanna invite you for this one song to impoverish yourself. If God is the God who has impoverished himself for you, then I wanna invite you, the only way you can receive him in his fullness and see him as Mary sees him is to impoverish yourself. So if you have questions and doubts, and I know you do, lay them down just for this one song. Lay them on Jesus' feet so you can have them. When the song's over, pick them back up. But see what happens. If you have fears about what might happen to enter in relationship with him or to come back to him or to give him all that you have, if you have fears, lay them down on Jesus' feet and join the song. If you have pain and hurt from the past, lay it down for this one song. If you have guilt or shame or anger that's holding it, you're holding in your hands, put it on his feet for this one song and see what he says to you. If you're tired today, if the gods that you worship are too heavy, they're holding you down, take off the backpack pour it on his feet because he's already given everything for you. See what happens. For this one song, friends, I want to ask you, make yourself poor. Whatever's holding you back, lay it down and see if they still matter as much as you thought they did. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I want to see you as Mary sees you. I want to see you as Mary sees you. I want to see you as that little girl sees you. As the most important thing, as the God who has brought life to a dying world. How can we not kiss you? How can we not worship you? How can we not celebrate and sing to you? And I don't say that, Lord. I know that there are people in this room all over the spectrum of spirituality and faith who have legitimate concerns and pains and questions. But for this one song, Lord, I ask that they would lay them down, that they would impoverish themselves, that like Mary, they would come to you because you've already come to them and say, Lord, I give my questions to you. Say, Jesus, I give my questions to you. Jesus, I give my past to you. Jesus, I give my doubts to you. Will you meet me in that space? And will the song of our lips, Lord, be straight from our heart that says you've overcome the grave 
how can we not sing to you? Meet us, Lord. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.